What's up? This is Adam with Mile High Stash, the podcast that asks what five albums you would take to a remote Colorado cabin in the event of a zombie apocalypse, armed with only food, water, and a crank-powered Victrola. Uh, last weekend, I played the drums with Hunter Stone at um, Foco MX, otherwise known as the Fort Collins Music Experiment. Uh, it's it's very much like the like the South by Southwest of Colorado. And um, after my set with Hunter, I bounced around Fort Collins, seeing many bands and many friends. And to top it off, I popped in the back door of the Aggie Theater, where um, I have so many memories of playing shows with gasoline lollipops, especially, uh, just to make sure to catch the mighty Plasma Canvas from the side of the stage. Plasma Canvas is a young, energetic, just crushing Fort Collins emo metal punk band fronted by Adrian Ash, who is our guest today on Mile High Stash. She calls Plasma Canvas the loudest, gayest band on earth. And I just think that their new album, Dusk, is uh, fucking fantastic. Um, Adrian has a lot of influences, and that makes Dusk surprisingly diverse for a heavy album. You know, it, it, it's kind of all over the place, although it has, you know, some themes. Um, I feel like sometimes I talk too much, and uh, uh, that's probably happening right now. But my interview with Adrian definitely helped with that because she just goes when you ask a question. And I like that, partly because her experience um, um, of being um, a trans kid from outside St. Louis and showing up in, in Colorado with basically nothing but a guitar is really not something to interrupt or, or, or something that I could explain myself. Uh, so sit back and enjoy this one. Um, today's episode of Mile High Stash is brought to you by the amazing Punk Is Dad charity for music students in, um, in Colorado. And uh, you'll hear more about that in a second. I also wanted to remind everybody that I'm doing another live recording of Mile High Stash on Saturday, June 3rd at the Roots Music Project in Boulder with singer-songwriter Steve Varney of Gregory Allen Isakov's band and opening act Rachel Slyker of the River, Arkansas. So I hope to see you Saturday, June 3rd at the Roots Music Project in Boulder. Um, all right, see you on the other side. Punka's dad celebrates the memory of Dorian DeLong, a lifelong educator, arts advocate, and local music aficionado who passed away in May of 2015. After a brief COVID hiatus, Punka's dad returns Saturday, June 17th, when influential and emerging Colorado bands come together for arts and music education at Oscar Blues Black Buzzard in Denver. The fifth annual Punka's dad benefit concert will feature Fast Eddie, Dressy Bessie, and Jaguar Stevens. Punka's dad raises money for the Dorian DeLong Arts and Music Scholarship Foundation, which since 2017 has made $1,500 to $2,500 awards to students graduating from Colorado high schools to study arts or music at Colorado colleges and universities. Past Punka's dad concerts have featured bands like The Velveteers and Gasoline Lollipops. This year's lineup on June 17th at Oscar Blues Black Buzzard in Denver will continue to offer high-energy performances and a good time for a great cause. For more info, head to punkisdad.org. We're here with Adrian Ray Ash, or just, you know, Adrian Ash. Yeah. Um, and you said that you live in Fort Collins. Have you lived there a long time? Oh, geez, yeah, about seven years, something like that. And where are you from? Uh, St. Louis. St. Louis? St. Louis, Missouri, yeah. Oh. I have a good friend who is a, a bass player in one of the groups I play with, and he's from St. Louis. And and uh, it seems like one of those places where uh, people can be so nice that it's almost like off-putting. Yeah. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> well, it's kind of, um, you know, it's the show-me state, I guess. So, like, people kind of want you to back your words up you know and like they they want you to like basically sh you know show me you know yeah. don't don't talk about it be about it 
Um, so like a lot of people tend to value like labor and, mm. you know, so there's not a lot of space for art in places mm. like where I grew up, which is sort of a, a small town and kind of a red area. And, yeah. uh, you know, so, I mean, there's a really cool like arts and queer scene up in like St. Louis, but I was like, I grew up like an hour away from that. <clears throat> yeah. So it was kind of, um, just a little bit of a different vibe for me, but, uh, you know, I, I got to experience like a couple of different flavors of growing up in that area because like the city is, you know, as it, that's what everybody calls it, like who lives around the St. Louis area is like, we're going up to the city this weekend. Mm. Oh, where are you going to go? Oh, we're going to go up to the loop, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I grew up in uh, kind of a more like redneck area, pretty yeah. working class, um, you know, not not much of like a music scene going on, but like me and my friends and you know some other um like people from surrounding towns that had like similar taste in music we would play like garage shows or or like uh you know the closest thing resembling DIY was like a bunch of people and a bunch of bands that don't really sound alike going to some dude's property out in the woods and just yeah. getting trashed and playing to a bunch fun. of yeah it was great um you know it's a uh, it's it was pretty cool but um <clears throat> You know, it's it's the whole like being so nice that it's off putting is uh it's definitely a real thing. You know, there's there's such a thing as Midwest nice, which mm. is uh, you know, it's it's not necessarily being nice. Like uh um, you know, I'm, my mom always told me that there was a difference between being nice and being kind. Mm. And like I try to try to be both, to be honest. Yeah. But you know, it's real easy to be one and not the other. And um you know, it's almost like uh, when you go to the South, you hear a lot of, oh, bless your heart. Mm. Like, oh, you're so dumb. That's what that means. <laughs> and then in Missouri, it's like, oh, well, you have such interesting taste. Mm. That's, you know, wow, what an outfit. Mm. You know, like it's kind of that kind of nice. Right. So it can be a little bit off-putting, but also it, it's sort of a, you know, I've I've met a lot of people um, who who compare it to like, you know, I've got like a friend from the UK that compared uh, like people from Missouri being like kind of a microcosm of just people in the United States and how like there's just such a cultural difference of like, you know, we hug and we smile and we're mm. like, hey, how's it going? What do you, you know, kind of loudly in your face, kind of kind to people. Yeah, yeah, it freaks people out, especially if you're yeah. from like, you know, a bigger city or like, you know, just a place where people just kind of do their own thing. Mm. You know, but uh, it's kind of there's it's it's a double edged sword, you know, because um, like when you live in a, a smaller area like that, everybody's there for each other. You know, like there's there's a lot of a sense of community because everybody knows everybody. There's not very many people there, but everyone's all up in each other's business, too. Mm -hmm. So like everybody knows everything about everybody. And it makes it really hard to kind of form your own identity because um, people just have like such a solid idea of you from when you were like two feet tall mm -hmm. um yeah i don't know i was i was going somewhere with that but adhd <laughs> took over so. how did you end up in colorado uh ended up in colorado just because i kind of got sick of being there yeah um to be honest it was uh honestly it was uh I, you know i um i was 25 and I just, uh, th there was just nothing left for me where I was growing up. And, you know, I could drive up and down Fifth Street on a Saturday night for the millionth time, but I just, there just wasn't anything left, you know? And I, I knew that, like, if I didn't leave there, that I would end up, like, going through the same cycle that I'd seen so many people go through, which is, like, you know, getting hooked on, like, meth or going to jail because there's, like, a small population, but the cops have to make their quotas. So, like, the cops are really, really strict where mm -hmm. I come from. Um, What's the name of the town? Is it St. Louis? Uh, Washington, Missouri. Okay. So it's uh, it's about an hour away from St. Louis. It was kind of, you know, I grew up, like, going to St. Louis every now and then, but, like, for the most part, it was, it was pretty removed from that. Yeah. And did you go straight to Fort Collins? No, actually, I, um, I had some friends in Denver... And I didn't really have a plan. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I uh, it was it was sort of a thing of uh, desperation because I had um, you know I it, it's weird because I I don't like to make being trans my identity. 
Um, but it has informed a lot of the decisions I've made. Mm. <laughs> like, um, <clears throat> you know, for example, I, uh, I grew up in a small town where everybody knew me and, um, you know, whenever I came out, it was like, it was a thing where I, I figured out I was trans. And then like two weeks later, I, you know, less than like two weeks later, I was, I told everybody. And yeah. when was know, this? Uh, October, 2014. So it was, uh, you know, the, there was just starting to become like a bunch of information about us yeah. in the media and it, you know, largely was not great. Mm-hmm. Um, so whenever I came out, I had a lot of people who were supportive, a lot of people who were really cool, but there were even more people who were confused or just straight up ignorant. Um, you know, I had some people that I'd known my entire life, like send me really horrible messages over like Facebook and stuff. So I just kind of, I don't know, I, I got through another year living there. Um, but I started to feel like just generally unsafe. Um, I'm sorry. And I mean, you know, physically, it w- I probably would have been okay. Um, but I think the reason that I would, I know I would have been okay is pretty depressing because I just didn't go anywhere. Yeah. I didn't do anything because, you know, who's going to, you know, who's going to hang out with me if, uh, you know, I don't really have any friends or mm-hmm. like, you know, it's, I'm everybody's first trans person in 2014 and, you know, this small town in Missouri. So I just kind of, I had to, I had to do something else. And, yeah. You know, my cousin um, had a band, and uh, they had a show booked at this place called Seven Circle Music Collective, baby. Um, so uh, it, it was kind of a crazy coincidence, actually, because I had met Aaron Say, um, the at the time owner of that space. Um, I had met him randomly by chance at uh, an Against Me Gaslight Anthem concert um, in Kansas City. And that was like... Jeez, probably like four days after I came out. Super weird. Mm. Um, but Aaron was like, yeah, dude, if you ever make it out to, you know, Denver, I got a really cool venue and you probably like find a lot of community there. And, you know, so I was like, okay, sweet. And, uh, you know, we exchanged numbers and I was like I, driving back to my hometown, like I'll probably never see that guy again. But like, you know, it's good to make a new friend. And, you know, about a year later, I actually called him up and I was like, Hey dude, uh, I gotta get out of here. You know, what am I, what am I doing here? Can you help me, you know, like find somewhere to land? And, you know, he was like, well, I I have like a couple of friends that I can talk to. And, you know, through Aaron kind of setting up a support structure for me, I was able to like find a place to crash for a while. And, you know, it just wasn't the right fit. Um, so I ended up like moving up to Fort Collins after I found, like somewhere to stay. And, um, you know, I had some friends up here and, uh, I had uh, a partner that I had just started dating and, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of a thing where, uh, yeah, uh, I just met you really, <laughs> but could you maybe not let me sleep outside? Yeah. And so it was, yeah, I, I ended up, um, moving to Fort Collins cause it was a, it was a matter of survival pretty much. Like I, I moved to Denver with 60 bucks and a couple baskets of clothes and a couple guitars and that was about it. So I, um, kind of screwed myself <laughs> in the planning department, but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've just, I feel very lucky to still be alive and mm-hmm. to, you know, done what I've managed to do. Uh, looking back at like kind of how freaked out I was in my cousin's van <laughs> with his band um, coming to Denver for the first time and not really knowing what I was doing after they left and I stayed. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I remember it was December 4th, 2015. I moved to Denver and I played a show with my cousin's band at Seven Circle. Um, yeah. And then about a month after that, I moved to Fort Collins and um Good, like three months after that, I started Plasma Canvas. So Just Plasma Canvas was started in 2015? 2016. But like uh, a lot of the songs that I had written had been around since like 2015 or so. What kind of places did Plasma Canvas originally play? Like Surfside and Hodes or? Yeah, yeah. It was kind of, um, well, the very first couple of shows, I think, were uh, 
um, like seven circle shows because I just didn't know anybody, anybody anywhere else. And I yeah. didn't know how to get Even friends. Even an hour anywhere. away. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And actually, I think um, one of the uh, one of the first shows we ever played was at the Forge, which was this space in Boulder mm-hmm. that's no longer it's here. It's not here anymore. And that space has been a bunch of <laughs> different things. Yeah, yeah. It, maybe it was something else before and something else after. I know that it got shut down, and I was really mm-hmm. bummed about it. But, yeah, I remember one of the first shows we ever played was at the Forge, and it was me and um, the original drummer, Dave. And it was kind of like I met him through Craigslist because mm-hmm. um, I was just like, I have a bunch of songs. I want to document this. And, um, you know, I, I don't really know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> I just have a bunch of songs that I'm proud of and I would like to document them somehow. And I can do everything else. I just need someone to play the drums. So it was originally a duo. Y- yeah, sort of. It, it kind of fell into being a duo because mm-hmm. like... And what happened was I, you know, I was worshiping at the altar of these songs and I didn't really know what it was going to be. I just knew that like, it was all I had. Mm-hmm. It was just this collection of memories that I had put melodies to yeah. and I wanted to leave my mark, you know, and, and like, you know, if, if like somebody like the Dickies can, can stick around for a long time and leave their mark. I can, I can leave mine, you know, there's a million crappy punk records out there and, you know, why not add one more just cause it's mine. And you know, this is, this is my story. That's like the whole point, right? Mm -hmm. Like anybody can do it. Anybody can pick it up. And for me, I felt like, uh, I had a little bit of a, of a story to share. Um, and, uh, I don't know if it's profound or anything, but it's honest. And that was the kind of the point of it is, you know, I wrote, um, I wrote a bunch of songs that felt real and it started as like, you know, just a way to remove the filter between me and the world, like just blood and guts on a canvas. Yeah. And, uh, you know, cause I had been in bands before where, um, you know, I, I would have to run my lyrics by like three other people because like we would all feel differently about certain things and, you know, some somewhere like politically different or like emotionally different or whatever. So I would end up like trying to make these lyrics work for other people's expectations. Mm. And they just ended up sounding really vague and boring and just wasn't honest. And uh, with this, I was like, I'm removing any 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 barrier to you know just my heart the 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 vulnerable scary part of me that i'm like afraid to talk about that's like the thing that i know that i need to do yeah you know is is chase that kind of that innermost thing and and be okay with sharing that because for so long i just kind of felt like i had to do you know what other people thought was cool and this was like i'm just gonna do my thing and if it's cringe i don't care if it sucks i don't care you know um there's just uh there's so many other records out there and you know maybe it's time for me to do mine yeah whatever that means i was gonna ask you what kind of music you listened to in missouri when you were growing up but i think as we get to your five albums that you would take to a remote colorado cabin during a zombie apocalypse, we might learn what some of that music was. <laughs> yeah. So what's your first album? Oh, man. Uh, well, they're all tied for number one. Okay. Yeah. First of all. Um, but my favorite band of all time is uh, Jimmy Eat World. So, oh, really? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I would use, I would take Futures up with me to this to this cabin. Because um, that record, uh, it just, you know, it, I, I remember it came out when I was like 13 years old or so, and I was like maybe a little bit too young for it then, but like I kind of came back to it when I was like 18 or so, and I just, oh man, it, it, it just hit like a brick wall at that point, and I just, I just never... You know, the, there, there are so many other records by them that I love, but that one is just... You know, where Jim was, I feel, mentally when he wrote that one and, like, uh, the Stay On My Side Tonight EP that happened, like, right afterwards. It was just a really special time 
you know, a really painful time. Like, I don't think I'd want to, like, talk to him during that time. But, yeah. like, the music is honest yeah. and it's painful. And sometimes, you know, a lot of times whenever I'm listening to Jimmy World, like, full albums, I needed to hit the cry button. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I would take Futures because I feel like it does the most of what I love about them. And uh, there are the most songs on that record that mean a lot to me and I have a lot of personal connections with, a lot but of nostalgia. That's not quite as heavy as, as what you do. So how did you get in, into heavy music? Uh, well, actually, it's a, it's kind of a funny story. I um, You know, I got a Metallica tattoo on my leg. Oh, nice. Because uh, my mom... Um, you know, I, I guess we could go a little bit of a different route. So my introduction to like wanting to be a musician was my mom put on the video for one by Metallica. And I was like, what is this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because I had, I had heard Inner Sandman and stuff. Um, but some people will say that, that that was the last real Metallica album was Injustice for All. Yeah, I mean, you know. I have so many thoughts about yeah. Metallica. I could, could talk, talk about, about Metallica that. all day, yeah. but like, um, you know, that record just happened to spark it for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the lyrical themes on that of just like, life's not fair and you just got to deal with it. Like mm-hmm. that, that sucked. But it was also like being 16 years old, listening to that record, it was like armor, you know, mm-hmm. that was, you know, and, and like Slipknot and stuff like that. I, I was actually a really big metalhead when I was like 14, 15, 16 years old. Um, you know, if you were to ask me then, it would probably be like Children of Odo, Metallica, Trivium, and like System of a Down and, you know, whatever, like really heavy thing I could get, which, you know, not even that stuff is like ultra heavy, but I was never into like Cannibal Corpse or whatever because at some point it just feels like cartoony <laughs> to right. me. And I sort of, point is I found metal early on and then I got into punk and, and uh, you know, I discovered fun <laughs> later in my teenage mm-hmm. years. Like when I was 19 or 20, I, I found like this really wonderful plant that allowed me to uh, l- relax a little bit <laughs> and yeah. enjoy other things that weren't rigid metal shredding and uh, angry war lyrics or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, I, I definitely grew up on metal first and found other stuff later. So that's where like the the chops come in, really. Like yeah. I grew up playing Master Puppets and Creeping Death and stuff. And um, but I, you know, I think the big shift happened from you know being a metalhead to like being a punk. Um, that happened when I was like maybe eighteen, nineteen years old. Uh, because I would go to shows and my band would play shows and, you know, I was really into metal. So my band at the time, which will not be named because it was not good. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I would be like, why doesn't anybody care about us? Like, why is nobody dancing? Like this sucks. And, you know, and then I would see other metal bands and it would just be like four dudes in like khaki cargo shorts with like cut off metal band t-shirts standing in one spot staring at their fretboard for 30 minutes Mm -hmm. and like i was like oh man this is really boring and then i saw a hardcore band and it was like well this is big and loud and heavy but like i don't think the singer has stood in one place for more than three seconds for the last half hour so like you know it kind of became more about like it became less about making music to impress other guitar players and musicians and trying to find the song and trying to write worthwhile songs that that hit people in in the gut and in the heart space rather than like trying to make something that was really impressive and you know and whatever um but it's 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 always been a complicated thing for me to wrestle with because uh I have a lot of influences and I refuse to funnel them (laughs) and I just kind of write whatever I want to write. And, um, you know, I, I, I'd been told so many times over the years that that's kind of a, a weakness, but I just, I just like being able to do what I want to do. And, you know, if other people can do stuff like that, then so can I like Jeff Rosenstock had like hardcore and ska and indie rock. And, you know, um, (laughs) I, I think, uh, I think there's a lot of people who kind of go all over the place with their influences. And I think that's, 
you know, we're on a, a rock floating through space that's heating up and about to boil us all alive. I don't really think it matters. You don't have to make sense. <laughs> no, no. Think of a band like Ween, where if they're 15 songs on the record, each one is like a, a different genre. Yeah, exactly. So, um, how many albums does Plasma Canvas have? So the first record we put out was in um, October of 2016, and that was a full length. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not very good. <laughs> so It's out there, though. It's on Spotify. Yeah, it is out there. It is on Spotify. And, you know, I, I will say this about it. It was trying new things. Yeah. Using a bunch of pedals and instrumentation and, you know, vocal stuff the thing is it was uh recorded at a really cool studio with like a really great dude and uh but i ran out of time and money to get him to also mix and master it so i hit up a buddy of mine and i was like hey man uh we got this album release show in a couple of days which was also a a very silly part of the story um i started the band uh and like three or four rehearsals into writing things um i came to our rehearsal space and informed our drummer dave uh that we had that i had booked our album release show Mm -hmm. (laughs) just very much not the way to do it but the the thought process was like well this will make me like kick myself into gear and like you know we'll we'll get it done Mm -hmm. you know but sometimes that works and you know Mm -hmm. it's not a like horrible concept like well you only have this much time go it was also just kind of rushed and didn't turn out as good as it could have. Mm. So what did you learn from that that, you know, you might have used on on this upcoming release? Make the record before you book the album release yeah. show, <laughs> number one. But also, like, uh, don't, don't force the art to fit the schedule. You yeah. know, like, the art is always going to be more important than deadlines or whatever. Mm. You know, just make sure the art is correct because you're not, in, you know, in 15, 20 years, I'm not going to care about, you know, what if we had to like push back a release date a couple weeks or whatever. Like yeah. it's, you know, that that is the most important thing is make sure the art is ready to be shared before you like set a date that you're definitely for sure going to yeah. share it. And the first one, um, did you record on your own? And this this one you recorded at the Blasting Room, is that right? Well, it's kind of a, so we did that first full length LP and, uh, um, you know, that was recorded at Stout Studios in Fort Collins. Um, and then, uh, Dave left the project and then, um, our old drummer Evelyn, uh, came in and, uh, we recorded No Faces together, which is our first EP, um, and that was recorded just with our friend Jared Meyer, uh, who plays in this band in Fort Collins called AM Pleasure Assassins. Um, we, we just did it uh, at some studio that he knew of. It was wild. It just looked like a garage. But like mm. when you walked in it, it was like really fancy and cool looking. So we were like, whoa, this is neat. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we, we tracked that one in um, I think January of 2018 and put it out that summer. Um, and then like right around that summer, um, was when we played Warp Tour and, uh, we got, we got in contact with Side One Dummy through Kevin Lyman cause Kevin Lyman liked our band. Um, and then, yeah, so we did No Faces in 2018 and then throughout 2018, 2019, we were talking to Side One Dummy kind of behind the scenes mm-hmm. and, you know, big things coming soon energy kind of going on. Um, and then the pandemic happened. Yeah, so we we recorded Killer Majestic in November of 2019, and we were just, like, stoked because it was, like, we got signed to a label, and it's, like, a a pretty cool label, and, you know, we're going to have a lot of opportunities come out of this, which we did. Um, You know, February 2020, we were on the phone with this booking agent who, like, was really, really cool, and, um, you know, there was just a a wholly different vibe Mm -hmm. (laughs) than the rest of that year. Um, you know, we had this tour lined up with Lagwagon and Less Than Jake. Um, it was going to happen in May, and it was going to be kind of like, you know, all right, well, let's see where they go from there, mm-hmm. you know. And then um, 2020 happened, mm-hmm. and that didn't that didn't pan out. So instead, what happened was we released Killer Majestic in, in June of 2020, and... 
Oh man, that was rough. It was really rough. Cause first of all, it was a record that we weren't, we didn't hate it. We didn't dislike it, but we weren't like the most proud of it. Cause it was just, you know, we wanted, we were ready to make a record, you know, cause we had put out no faces in 2018 and it had been like a year and a half since then. And we were like, okay, well we're ready to like make a record. And, uh, you know, the way that it turned out was like, well, let's just try something a little bit, you know, less risky and, you know, um, we'll see how that goes and then we'll figure the rest out later and maybe do something else. And so when we put out Killer Majestic, it was like, you know, this one really heavy song right off the bat and then like, you know, a little bit more of a singable Rise against the punky song and then like, you know, your syrupy pop punk Gaslight Anthem worship song and then like the most cookie cutter formulaic pop punk song that I could possibly ever write, um, which is our most popular song that we don't play really. Cause it's just not enjoyable for us. Mm. Um, you know, and then a song on the end about just how I would like to not work at a factory yeah. and, you know, so it was kind of, it wasn't my strongest moment as, as a songwriter. And I felt like there was so much more that I wanted to say, um, you know, and I kind of used Killer Majestic as like, you know, there there were some really strong songs on there, but it, um, you know, with that, those five songs that we were kind of like, yeah, it's all right. You know, we'll put it, we'll put this out. Let's see what happens. Like it, you know, to have that be the sole representation of your, the culmination of years of work, you know, it, it was rough because when, the, when 2020 happened and everything shut down, we were like, dang, dude, like we have to, we have to put this thing out here. And, you know, half the songs on here are like, you know, sound like they could have been on a Tony Hawk soundtrack <laughs> and, you know, people's loved ones are being buried and like right. it's just not the time to sell an upbeat pop punk record. Yeah. And uh, you know, it 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 sucked in so many ways, but you know, we, we just joined the chorus of musicians who were like, Well, I guess I used to be a musician, <laughs> you know. We just joined the ranks of so many people who were about to do cool things and then it just fell apart. Um, so it's uh you know, Killer Majestic being the only thing that anyone's heard from us for the last two years was a pretty big bummer for, for me and Evelyn. And, um, you know, so it, it felt, it feels pretty good to have something new to talk about with people. So that's where we are with Dusk. You recorded the new record with Bill Stevenson and, uh, Killer Majestic was the first thing we did with Side One Dummy. And we did that at the Blasting Room as well, um, with Bill and Andrew, um, and then Jason Livermore, uh, m mastered mm -hmm. it. Uh, and the same thing with, uh, dusk was, um, you know, Andrew did the, uh, you know, the engineering on it, um, and tracked like all the instrumentation and yeah. Bill, Bill showed up when it was time to do vocals and like mm -hmm. helped me dig the songs out. And then Jason, you know, did the mastering thing, which I still don't really understand, but I'm very uh -huh. grateful for because <laughs> it sounds yeah. great. Trying to explain to people the difference between mixing and mastering is, is, um, it's kind of impossible. You can't really explain it, I think, unless you are a, a mastering yeah. engineer. Like, I sort of understand parts of it. You understand it when you listen, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, like, I know the difference between, like, you know, the final draft of the mix and, like, the, you know, the first draft of the master, you Yeah. Know? Like, there's definitely a lot of stuff that happens, but, you know, that's why we go there is because yeah. they know how to do that, and I don't. Yeah. But I mean, the blasting room—it it just seems amazing. It, it, if you're gonna do anything remotely punk, you know, to go in and work with people who have made albums that you know changed everybody's lives, and you can say, "Well, I'm gonna work with them. They know, right? They know what to do." Yeah, yeah, and it's also really cool just be in there. Like the blasting room is a really, really cool space to be in. Um, especially if you go to studio C, there's a really rad Easter egg there that, um, you know, maybe <laughs> I don't think anybody's going to care that I talk about it cause they all think it's cool too. But, uh, 
Studio A is like the big room, and then Studio B is, you know, the the room that's in the hallway on the way to Studio C, which is, you know, Studio C is, I think, where they do most of the vocals. Um, but if you go into Studio C and you look up, there are four panels arranged in the black flag bars. Nice. Yeah, four, like, acoustic <laughs> paneling, like, you know, but it's it's definitely there for a reason. Yeah. And just walking around and seeing all the the awesome records that have been there. There's also like a really beautiful, like huge um, paint on wood painting of Frank Nevetta. Um, you know, just in the early Milo goes to college days, yeah. and you know, just just odes to like Bill doing stuff and in Black Flag and in Descendants, just so much Descendants all in Black Flag stuff. It's just really mm-hmm. cool to be in there seeing all the Rise Against records and stuff on the wall. It's just, it's it's a really rad space, but it's also the coolest thing about it is like if you were to, you could you could walk right past it and not know it mm-hmm. was there. Um, so <laughs> it's just kind of cool to, to like open the door and just see such a different universe and, and know that like so many of your favorite records were made right there. Yeah. I'm going to have Bill um, on the show very soon and I'm, I'm very intimidated. I remember very well the ninth ninth grade, you know, hearing Milo Goes to College. So I, I can't think of him without thinking of that bass line. And then his drums come in. And anybody who is playing drums in a punk band as a teenager, if you hear that record, you're just like, I want I want to be able to do that. Yeah. You know, so making a record with with somebody like that seems exciting but also intimidating like this better be good like i hope he thinks it's good you know yeah well i mean <laughs> you know what he's so funny cuz like he he's just so he's a weird dude in the best way and that's what i love about him is cuz i you know hanging out and talking to bill i feel understood in a way that like i don't with a lot of people mm-hmm. and i think that's just cuz bill's a little out there and, you know, musicians are a weird bunch. And so, um, you know, especially like making a record with the dude whenever, is you know, Dusk was kind of a, a strained recording process. You know, like I wrote it in one room alone by myself whenever I, you know, felt like all my dreams had been crushed and I needed mm-hmm. a way to like keep going. Yeah. You know, you know, so I wrote Dusk as a way to like just get through, you know, the end of 2020, 2021, just this huge period of uncertainty, not knowing what was going on. So when we came time to record it, it was, you know, a lot of those songs were already emotionally intense. And like, since I wrote most of it myself, you know, a lot of the instrumentation was just me. And, you know, I think uh, that definitely, um, it, it, it was it was a big learning experience and how to, how to do things and how not to do things. And, you know, with Bill, it was just me and him doing the vocals and he's not a tough crowd, but he will let you know (laughs) when you're flat. But, um, he has this thing where like he, he lets everybody try something like three times everybody deserves three tries before he's just like okay well that's clearly not working mm-hmm. let's do something else and it's never in the you know the whenever he offers criticisms or anything it's never in in um you know in a way that he's trying to cut you down or like do some weird mental ross robinson kind of shit it's just uh you know he he's like okay well mathematically <laughs> we're doing um more labor on this thing that isn't working than is necessary so maybe we should try something else and you know sometimes the way he can go about saying that can be just very to the point and to the point where it's like a bit jarring but (laughs) you know he always means well and he always comes from a place of empathy and you know whenever whenever you tell him about like what certain songs are about when it's you know kind of close to the chest he kind of he gets that you know and it's it's cool to work with people who are professional about you know singing songs that are about really heavy things. Yeah, um, Dusk was a hard record to record, and you know not only did he think the songs were good, but you know he was just really cool to have around. Yeah, just as a person to talk to through it all. You know, I want to ask you about the vocals, uh, yeah, in your band and, and on the record. But first, will you give me your number two and number three? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I got um, Weezer, the Blue Album. Why? Because it's perfect. Because it's perfect. Yeah. (laughs) It's, uh, um, you know, my favorite thing about Weezer, this is my favorite Weezer joke. Um, My favorite thing about Weezer is that they made this one perfect record, and then they just never did anything again after (laughs) that. And I'm just so grateful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which, you know, that, that makes all the Pinkerton fans so mad. But, like, whatever. It's just Weezer record. I mean, this is the one with the sweater song and Buddy Holly. Just like a master class in pop songwriting produced by Rico Kasich of the Cars. Like it it just, you know, all goat, no skips all the the way through. The guitar is, is, if I think any about... Anything about the record is perfect. It's it's the guitar sound. Oh yeah. It's it's got that um, Johnny Ramone, like, it's so, it's so, actually, <laughs> the woman from the Velveteers is developing a sound like that where Demi, where the guitar is like its own band. Yeah, know? dude. The Velveteers oh. are so cool. It's uh, it's been really rad to see them like just take off. Yeah. Um, because you know we we played a lot of like DIY shows together mm-hmm. back in the day, and like I remember playing this uh, this show in Fort Collins with them. It was just like in a garage. It was a packed garage. It was mm-hmm. a great show, but like, you know, I, it's just so cool to to remember them doing that. Right. And that was like right. I think that was like right when they first started playing with two drummers. Either that or it was right before, but like, you know, just seeing them, you know, open for Guns N' Roses and go out on mm-hmm. tour with Greta Van Fleet and the Black Keys, it just, mm-hmm. oh God, I cannot be more stoked for them. And just got the warm fuzzies every time I just see my buddies out there doing that. That's awesome. I took my kid to see the Velveteers recently and I, I felt like it was as much of an education as, as if we went to like a science museum, history muse- museum or something. It's like, this is important. You got to watch. This is how you do it. Well, yeah. And like they, you know, I think, um, you know, this is actually a good opportunity to talk about how much I've learned from them. Yeah. You know, um, they've just by them doing what they do, I've learned so much about myself as a musician Hmm. um, because they are really good at just leaving some things to the imagination. Yeah. And, you know, they they post a lot on social media, but they don't like, they don't tell you everything. Right. And, you know, it's, it's very music centric and, um, you know, I, I think that's really cool. And, you know, the whole aesthetic and, and presentation and approach of Nightmare Daydream was really, really cool and thought out. And I really love the like timeless kind of vintagey aesthetic that they, mm. that they went with on that. And, you know, you can really tell that like Dan found the cool thing about mm. them and kind of just like, Let's chase that. And, uh, you know, and, and they definitely, they've always had, you know, Demi's is, is so smart and, and just has built her own thing as a guitar player with the baritone and mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the big fuzzy bass stack and guitar stack. Like I used to do a similar thing where I would have like a Vox AC30. Um, I think Demi uses a Fender, but like I, I would have a Vox AC30 and like uh, like an Ampeg bass amp because I wanted to like fill it up and make it chunky, um, you know. And uh, bands like the Velveteers and In the Whale, um, you know, they they kind of helped me figure out how to do that. Especially like Nate from In the Whale was really helpful with like audio stuff figuring out how to make it work better just in general less muddy more precise um but i've learned a lot from the velveteers because um you know that they kind of you know it rubbed off on me like i should i should care about the way that i present my band you know Mm -hmm. i should i should really put more intention into the way that things are put out there and not just you know be throwing whatever out because I need to post because it's Tuesday or whatever, you know, not doing thoughtless content, but like making art and sharing pieces of it. Mm -hmm. I think, um, that's one really big important lesson that I learned from them. And, uh, 
yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't want to go on and on about the <laughs> Velveteers. I just think they're awesome. Yeah. But uh, my number three is going to be, um, oh, man, this is a controversial choice. I had to uh, I had to pick one because I wanted to get more things in. But it's uh, My Chemical Romance, Danger Days. Danger what? Days, The True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys. Why is this controversial? Uh, because, um, you know, it's not the most popular record of their catalog, mm-hmm. um, but it's my favorite world that they made. Because mm-hmm. that's um, that's sort of the thing with My Chem and, and what I always loved about them is how Gerard would go to places and create places. And that's kind of what I wanted to do on Dusk was like, you know, make the, the record feel like it's its own place. Um, that, that you can go visit kind of like the black parade is, is a place. Um, but it, you know, I don't, I didn't want to do like the hard world building thing, um, of like having characters with names and stuff like that. It was just more like, you know, I wrote all of these songs and I mean them and, you know, they all have their own thing to say. And I'm going to, you know, I've always thought about like song sequencing while I'm writing songs. Like this would sound really cool after this, which would sound really cool before that. And, you know, I think that that's something I definitely picked up from My Chemical Romance. And uh, I guess the controversial part would be, you know, the it was a tie between th- Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge and Danger Days, The True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys. Um, but the, I think the only reason that Danger Days beat out Three Cheers was because uh, Three Cheers has a lot of really great singles, and you know it's it's a great um, record in general. But I think Danger Days is my favorite world that they built. How do you get through one song without blowing your voice out when you sing that way? Uh, <laughs> do you have vocal exercises that you do before shows? Um, it's hard to say, like, I mean, stage health is, is totally a thing, right? Yeah. Like, you you know, like, if you've ever had, like, a cold or something and you mm-hmm. get up on stage, it's like, for 30 or 40 minutes, you can get through it, but as soon as you're done, you just collapse, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, that's definitely part of it. You know, also, like, I'm, adrenaline. I'm a really anxious person. Like, I had, you know, even right now, just because just this is the first time we've met, I'm just kind yeah. of, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay, but, like... <laughs> Uh, you know, maybe there were a lot more poignant things that I wanted to say mm-hmm. <laughs> that, you know, it just came out like, yeah, and, um, you know, uh, so um, it, it kind of, uh, uh, shit, I forgot where I was going. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, oh, vocal exercises and in, in singing shows, singing at shows. Um, I, I just, I just go with it. And I let that nervous energy just channel into the performance. And, um, you know, I also was in, uh, I was a choir kid in high school. So like I learned a lot of technique there. Um, and I've taken a couple of seminars with Melissa Cross who did like the Zen of screaming and worked with a lot of like metal vocalists. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't necessarily make metal music, but a lot of the techniques that they use, um, you know, I, I like I like describing Plasma Canvas as being more punk in ethos than sound, because it I don't think that punk is a sound. I think it's an approach. I think it's like the way that you look at the world. Yeah. It's sort of like you know Ian Mackay talking about skateboarding be a different way of seeing things. Like I think punk is is uh, you know I don't I don't like to define rigidly what punk rock is, but you know or what punk is. But I you know I know that it's more than like a NoFX record or whatever. You're speaking my language now, because yeah. I think the moment a punk band starts to sound like any other band, they're not doing anything punk. Right. It's a it's about um, thinking outside the box, you know. And Plasma Canvas, to me, what you're saying is correct because there's a punk ethos and attitude, but it's definitely metal too. You have some metal. Yeah. You know, metal was really influential in my sound. Like Alexi Laiho from Children to Bodom, um, not only was an amazing guitar player that I looked up to, but like just to see like a man with long, beautiful hair wearing makeup and nail polish and just being kind of feminine, just shred like that. I was like, 
you know, something about this kind of speaks to me, <laughs> and I'm not really sure why. How and now of, I kind of I get it, but how much of an influence is Laura Jane Grace? Uh, you know, like honestly, less than you would think. Yeah. Um, at the time that I came out, it was. You know, I, I actually really respect Laura. Um, you know, we, we played a show with Against Me once, and it was one of the most, like, affirming experiences ever. Mm. It was New Year's Eve 2019 at the Summit. And that was, like, a big bucket list item mm. for sure. Because, uh, you know, when it, I had heard of Against Me before Laura came out, but, you know, I think... Um, in 2012, that Rolling Stone article um, came out about her, and I bought that the copy of that magazine because it just seemed intriguing to me. And you know, I think reading it, I got some gears going. I was like, "Ah, well, that's that's cool. Good mm. for her. You know, that that's just great. Why am I feeling so many feelings? Why did I feel compelled to spend like 15 bucks on this Rolling Stone magazine? Yeah. Like, why do I? You know, and it was a confusing thing." And I, whenever her record, Transgender Dysphoria Blues, came out, I, you know, I bought it and I would listen to it all the time, like, um, you know, just to, to understand, you know, because I just, I just want to know, like, how other people feel and, <laughs> you know, maybe it can help me be a better person. Yeah. And then, you know, at, at one point I kind of realized that I was, uh, I was living a little vicariously mm-hmm. through some of these lyrics. And before I knew it, I was kind of, you know, the album had been out for like, nine months or so and you know i had an experience where like uh, my partner asked if they could do my makeup one night when we were like shit-faced and i was like yeah sure whatever and i woke up the next morning with a clear head and i washed my hands after using the bathroom looked up and i saw myself with makeup on my face and i was like well that's a good look i should go with that more often and you know like after thinking about it for a second and realizing the implications and why it looked good and felt normal but you know like it was a it's just really boringly normal feeling but realizing why that felt like such a duh normal thing was pretty scary but uh you know after a while I was like yeah I'm really actually feeling these lyrics unironically personally and um you know but as time kind of went on it's you know, I'm really grateful for her and, you know, for her writing her book. Um, it's a great book. I learned a lot about the the music industry from that book um, and just, you know, what to do and what not to do as a band to kind of like, you know, get where you want to go, but also maybe not make some of the same mistakes that, you know, are avoidable. And, uh, you know, so I've learned a lot from Laura and I, I respect her so much, but like, you know, the amount of times that I've had to um, defend myself from being like an against me ripoff is kind mm. of a bummer. Like, I don't think your band sounds anything like against me. I really appreciate yeah. that because, you know, that that was something that we used to get a lot. Like, I'm, I'm happy anytime, you know, we get, uh, you know, any other comparison, honestly, Um other than like, you know, oh, you guys remind me of uh, In the Whale and the Velveteers. And I'm like, oh, I wonder why, you know, because yeah. we were a two-piece for forever. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, it was either that or like, y'all remind me of Against Me. And I was like, really? Because I don't think we sound anything like them. When was the last time that Laura tuned to like drop G? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, Against it's... Me is not a metal band. It's a punk band. Right. Yeah. It's... And I don't, I don't necessarily think we're a metal band either, but we definitely get a lot heavier than yeah. Against Me. Yeah. And like, I just, I think it was, it just annoyed me that I would get compared to her all the time. And, you know, um, she's definitely, like, an influence on my sound for sure. And, you know, I've definitely, like, got a lot of respect for her and have learned a lot from her. But, you know, um, definitely, like, not as huge of an influence on me as, like, somebody could think, I guess. Yeah. Well, I would think that she um, is an influence to people across genres of music just for the fact that, she said, you know, I'm trans and I'm, that doesn't mean that I'm going to quit music. doesn't mean that right. it changes really anything. Yeah, it so, was it was huge. That, yeah. It was, you know, and I, I don't want to downplay that at all because, like, 
you know, for me, like even before I came out, I knew how huge it was. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I knew how important it was going to be because like I had never seen that before. And, you know, I think I had maybe seen like some very brief mention of it in some documentary about like punk in the 80s and like mm-hmm. somebody became like a different person or whatever. But it had never been reclaimed like that. It had never, you know, like somebody calling you a transvestite or, you know, the T word or whatever. It was always just like something that was tossed at you. And like, you know, at least in music and in punk and like that world, it's, you know, like I remember the 90s and early 2000s, like, you know, gay slurs were the whole thing Mm -hmm. or like that's gay or whatever. Nowadays, I say that's gay whenever my partner does something really cute and romantic and sweet because I'm Mm -hmm. trying to take it back, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with Laura writing her book and calling it tranny and like writing a book and calling it or writing a record and calling it Transgender Dysphoria Blues, it was just such a big, amazing, poignant moment. And, you know, that that action of, like, coming out in Rolling Stone, being a rock star, staying a rock star, not, you know, like, retiring into obscurity and letting the rumor mill do its thing. Like, she did so much for all of us doing Mm -hmm. that, and I will always be grateful to her for, for being the first one to stand up and say it and tell the world that I will be respected. Yeah. And I'm not asking. If there's anything punk, it's actually that. Yeah, <laughs> More exactly. So you want to you know about punk rock? You want to see who's really there? Tell all your friends you're a girl. Mm-hmm. You know, like you want to know who's actually down to like push back against the system and the status quo, tell them that you want to destroy gender or at least your own or like the confines of what you've been told that you have to abide by. You know, there's, there's so much that's punk as fuck about that. Mm -hmm. So album number four, album number four. Oh, um, I'm expecting NSYNC or Britney Spears, you know, Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I did have the Backstreet Boys Millennium record. Yeah. I was Camp Backstreet Boys because <laughs> um, I'm larger than life, <laughs> and I want it that way. Uh, I'll stop now. Um, it is – so this record actually also came out in 2014, um, which was the year that I came out and realized I was trans and slowly – you know, over that summer, um, you know, started becoming just a little bit softer. I don't know how to explain it. I started dyeing my hair more and like, you know, just kind of thinking of myself in just a little bit less strict manner. Because um, in late 2013, I had uh, attempted suicide. And I, you know, I woke up after this, um, you know, horrible experience in this like low mental place and I was just kind of like well that didn't work uh now what do I do and so I just kind of said fuck it and you know what's what's great is I've lately I've been finding my fuck itness again which is a beautiful feeling um you know trying to mold so much of who I am into you know what fits into an algorithm you know or whatever and uh I just have no interest in that anymore so Backstreet Boys. Backstreet Boys, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but the album number four is um, Get Hurt by Gaslight Anthem. This band called the Gaslight Anthem is, is one of my favorite bands. Um Brian Fallon is just an amazing songwriter, just worships at the altar of Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, there's there's been a lot of comparisons and it's a whole meme. But like, um, I love Get Hurt and a lot of Gaslight Anthem fans don't feel similarly because it's it was the last record they did. It's the most of a it's the biggest departure. I think that record for me is the only one of their records that personally I can just zip through no skips Mm -hmm. you know the other ones are great too but that one really just means a lot to me personally because i think it's the most personal and painful record and you know they just tried a lot of new stuff on it yeah so i had to go with that one 
if anybody listening hasn't heard that Gaslight Anthem album or any of these choices, don't forget that there is a Mile High Stash Spotify playlist with every uh, with at least one song from all of our guests' uh, choices. Um, tell me about this new record and the future of the band. You know what you're uh, excited about, and you know obviously this time you recorded the album and then uh, <laughs> booked the album release show. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're uh, so this is the record that we're trying to do everything the right way on. Um, not just for like business savvy reasons, but to respect the art, you know, mm-hmm. um, it was a very painful record to write and I don't, I want to make it worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's definitely uh, a record that I'm afraid for people to hear, which is a good thing. Uh, cause I feel like, you know, if you're an artist and you're not kind of cringing just a little bit at like being a little too vulnerable with the world, you know, if you're not like, if, if, if there aren't like people in your life that are going to be like, Oh man, why'd you put that in there? You know, like it's, it's gonna, then it's not a big enough risk, mm. you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's okay for some other people. But for me, I want to make art that's challenging. And, you know, even especially challenging for me, like why, what is the point of me making something that I feel all right about? Like I've been there and I've done that and Killer Majestic's a fine record and it sounds great. Um, But with this one, you know, Killer Majestic was kind of like, here's an hors d'oeuvre. Here's Mm -hmm. some hors d'oeuvres. Please like us. Here are the five most different and catchy and punchy things that I can write. Um, please like me. And this is like, Dusk is a record that says, I survived a pandemic and now you get what you get, motherfucker. <laughs> um, um, I want revenge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I had every, you know, like the project had everything lined up to do what it was supposed to do and what it could do. And you know, and then it kind of fell apart. And, you know, I don't want to say that this is me like tinkering away of my supervillain lab, getting my revenge on the earth, but like it kind of is because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just to be so close to everything I dreamed of since I was like 12 years old, picking up my guitar the first time, it, you know, to be so close to that and then have it kind of all fall apart. And, you know, at that was another thing that made me feel really endeared to the Velveteers listening to their episode with you was talk, you know, them talking about like how they were in sort of the exact same spot where like they, they weren't sure if like this big opportunity that they had been presented was still going to pan out. And, you know, um, I'm really glad that it did because Nightmare Daydreams a kick ass record. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it, it really sucks to see everything fall apart right in front of you. And, you know, it's um, it's hard whenever, like, you spend years just being like, oh, yeah, I, I just got to hang on for, for one more for one more thing or whatever because it's just about to happen. And then, you know, you're about to get there and then it doesn't, it doesn't work out. But uh, um, it's, it's a – I think Dusk is a record that's going to mean a lot of pe- – mean a lot to people mm-hmm. over the years. Like I, I wrote it to be an honest collection of of songs that that I was proud of, uh, and there's no extra fat on it. Everything is there because I wanted it to be there, and it felt like it should be there. You know, there, there's a lot of those themes about catastrophe and just the worst parts of of being a person, and and how you just have to carry on like you, you might not be you know you, you might not be stronger <laughs> like I, I don't necessarily believe that what what doesn't kill you makes you stronger sometimes it just gives you trauma mm-hmm. it makes you weird at parties <laughs> <laughs> you know sometimes yeah. it just it just uh impacts you and you have to deal with it and this record is kind of about that not necessarily like a big success story where like you know i stick the landing you know, but more like I survived. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm not really concerned with impressing any of you because I survived and I made this and I'm proud of it and that's enough for me. Will you give me your fifth and final answer 
Um, I actually stole this pick from Alexi Laiho, rest in peace. Uh, if, um, cause this was one of his desert Island records and, uh, I fell in love with this record through him and also cause children of Bodom covered one of his songs, but I would take, um, so as a recap, let's see here. We got Jimmy at world futures, um, Weezer blue record, my chemical romance, danger days, the true lives of the fabulous killjoys. Gaslight Anthem, Get Hurt. And then my fifth and final record that I would take with me to a cabin <laughs> in the woods during a zombie apocalypse is I Get Wet by Andrew W.K. Nice. Because I need something to party with, you know? Like, it, uh, if I'm going to be in the woods... I, uh, I need a good mood record every now and again too, and I, you know, some of these are great. Like I, I feel like I've got a good mix here. Like I, you know, there, there, it's kind of like half and half laughing and crying on this on this list. So, uh, Andrew WK is definitely the uh, the big loud heavy thing um, <laughs> that uh, would get me going if I needed to fight off some zombies. Yeah. I'll give you another hour, then I gotta run. I gotta... That was me and Adrian Ash of the mighty Plasma Canvas, um, whose new album, Dusk, is one of my favorites of the year so far. Um, look them up wherever you listen to stuff, and make sure to wear earplugs if you see Plasma Canvas live. You're going to need it. Uh, thanks for listening, and thanks to Punk Is Dad for their generous support of this episode definitely check them out um i will see you next monday as usual and also saturday june 3rd at the roots music project in in boulder where we will be recording an, another live episode of mile high stash with my guest steve varney of gregory on isakov's band see you then or see you next monday i want to go back to Montreal.